so welcome everybody to a live episode of Control Alt Delete. I'm so excited to be here and also we're in an independent bookshop, Luchens and Rubenstein, have I said that right? In lovely Notting Hill, it's a sunny day. I'm just trying to set the scene for people who might be listening um, on the podcast later. And I'm here with someone who I'm just, I've been fangirling at for the last half an hour, so sorry, but Adam Kay, everybody. I've managed to rope you in. I don't know how, because you're the busiest person in the world at the moment, because your book is, this is going to hurt, is a Sunday Times number one bestseller. It is everywhere. It's been translated into 20 languages. It's won a hundred awards and you are just in demand. So thank you for being here. What else would I be doing at 10 a.m.? <laughs> yep. This or sleep? <laughs> I think, well, I'm not a morning person. Are you a morning person? No. Okay, so I, yeah, we're both just like drinking coffee on the way here, but this is going to be great. Um, so just a little spiel from me, and then, and then it's the Adam show. It's not about me. But I just wanted to say that we are here for Independent Bookshop Week, hashtag IBW2018, um, which is part of Books Are My Bag, um, which is an incredible initiative and organisation ran by the Booksellers Association. And essentially, I suppose, we are here to talk about buying books, supporting your local bookshops. It's really important. I definitely order things off Amazon Prime. Like, that happens. Um, and in a way, that's fine too. But I do think we need to buy books from local bookshops. If you want to support um, independent bookshops, just lastly, um, go to bit.ly forward slash bookshop heroes and essentially it's about making sure that the bookshops are more stabilized that we keep growing the numbers i think there's over 800 now which is actually way more than a few years ago so um we should treat them like cultural institutions is the campaign like pubs so keep them going so on to your juicy juicy book um can i stop being serious <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the serious <laughs> bit over so I'm just going to really quickly plug my own book, but then I, I won't do that again. So I've just <laughs> I just wrote The Multi-Hyphen Method, and I'm, I'm bringing it up because it's relevant to the first question, which is a book about the future of work, also the fact that we can be multiple different things. Human beings are more complex than just picking one thing for life. We have different chapters in our lives. We are all different things at once, and we can be if we want to be. And what I find really interesting about... Um, about the re you know something that you say which is quite serious about the book is that you're meant to pick your job for life at 16 on a UCAS form and obviously the book is about being a former junior doctor how is that crazy that you you made such a big decision at such a young age and yeah that's I've, I've just been I've been constantly fascinated since since the day I applied to be a doctor this is the case so 16 basically is when you choose your A-levels and uh, medical schools quite reasonably want a certain set of subjects. So that's that's the point when you decide what you want to do between the ages of 25 and 65. And 16 is not, no age to decide to do anything, let alone what you want to do for the entirety of the, of the rest of your life. And no one checks when you apply for medicine that you're going to be a good doctor. Uh, so everyone around you says, oh, amazing, brilliant, uh, congratulations, uh, what an amazing career, which it obviously is, but there are bad things about it. It takes its toll on you as, you know, as a person at home and at work. And there's no, like, if you, want to be, uh, if you want to be an astronaut or even a train driver, they'll do this sort of psychometric testing and evaluation of you. If you want to go on Love Island, <laughs> they'll, uh, they'll put you in front of a psychologist and, sort of and, and ask all these questions. But if you want to be a doctor, 
all they do is um, is check that you've got some like, extracurricular activities, that you've got your grade eight over, you're good at lacrosse, so you're on the first 11 or the first 15 or something, and that is, and, and then we're surprised when some people get through the other end and like, oh no, this is, uh, this is quite a sort of an emotionally challenged and charged job. So yeah, no, don't decide anything at, at 16. With the book, I mean, one of one of the things I think everyone has just absolutely universally loved is is just the detail of your stories. Obviously, you did have your diaries before. It wasn't just this mega crazy memory that you have of these things. You, you had written them down. Yes, yeah, so it's a contemporaneous diary of just the uh, like the revolting things that uh, that happened at the time. I just go up to my uh, uh, medical on call room um, and jot down the, the weird shit that happened to me. That day. Did you know then? You knew I'm going gonna, gonna to use this later. Uh, I don't know. I just sort of thought of myself as sort of chronic. In retrospect, what I was doing was uh, doing my own therapy, because it's a culture where if bad things happen, you don't talk about it. With bloody doctors, will bloody get on with it. Um, I was using humour as my own pressure release valve. In retrospect, that's what was happening. At the time, it just sort of like felt like a, a natural thing to do. Um, lots of funny things happened, revolting things happened. It's ostensibly a funny book. And it was just this sort of, this cache of, you know, anecdotes of objects and orifices. But I never thought when I was writing it that it would ever be uh, a book. And in fact, the first few times I was, when uh, I, I, I read, when the junior doctors were going on strike and I wanted to um, amplify their, their voice in, in a way, and I was reading out from my diaries, it took quite a few emails from a publisher nagging my agent to, to, to put me in front of them before I actually sort of agreed to meet because I didn't think... Like I said before, I, don't, I wasn't a, a huge reader. I didn't go to lots of bookshops. Books are something that the other clever people write. So I was sort of always... My imposter syndrome was like 10 out of 10 at, at that point. And what about the kind of legalities of it just because obviously um you don't give away details of people and things like that but when you're with a doctor obviously you're like don't go and tell your friends this stuff but also i read somewhere that you did want to include some celebrity anecdotes and your publisher was like no adam like yeah, you they can't they were very very <laughs> unreasonably keen that neither they nor i went to prison <laughs> and that to the extent that you know, it was really, they really went over all of the stuff uh, with, uh, with with this sort of uh, th these barristers. Um, so it just involved putting Vaseline on the on the lens, so changing times and dates and names and places, and sometimes doing like a sort of a cut and shut, uh, where with the clinical details of one uh, patient and the personal details of another who had a sort of similar similar story to put those um, together. But it was very important to me. Because I wanted, I wanted to say, this is what it's like to be a junior doctor. And I wanted the junior doctors and healthcare professionals who read it to go on you know, social media or say to their friends or, or their family, yeah, this is right, he's got it right. I didn't want to get the accusation that this is, this is an unfair representation. So I, I didn't want to change anything too much. And the other thing I was very keen to do was get the, the mix right. It's like, you know, you've got the sound desk over there and you can turn up the levels when I'm shouting, you're being too quiet and that, you know, the music or whatever. So I wanted to be sort of on my desk with the funny stuff and the sad stuff and the high octane stuff and the, the petty bureaucracies and the... Um, and so I wanted to, I w I wanted to get the, the, the mix right in the, in the edit. So that, the, that was the main thing that got... Mm. that we did to change it. Because the unfiltered diaries would 
you know, so boring. Uh, so a lot of them were like sort of <laughs> did cesarean section number 352, which, you know, no one wants to, to, to read that. Um, and, and so there was a lot of editing with uh, with that. And uh, but um, yeah, when 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 it, when it a story relied on naming a celebrity and describing their genitalia in huge detail. Uh, that t turns out that was very difficult to, to square with the with the lawyers. <laughs> and, the, and one of the other changes was um, uh, Myers described quite a lot of the entries as uh, tonally adrift, uh, which turns out was code for just too straight up disgusting. And so lots of them got got cut because they were like too horrid. And then the hardback sold a bunch of copies. And when the paperback came out, they said. Uh, uh, do, do you want, is there anything you want to change, given we're, you know, we're, we're, we're redoing it, repackaging it? I was like, yes, I want to put all of my really horrible <laughs> stories in a, in a postscript at the end. And, uh, and then I had slightly more clout and they let me. That's <laughs> hilarious. But I mean, the reason, you know, the book is so successful is because you are so funny and the way you write is so amazing. And you, you're, you're such a unique voice. And, you know, the, the way that you wrote it is, is the reason everyone loves it. And I just wondered, you are a comedian. You have been a comedian for a, for a a while I don't know how long uh, I guess since I stopped being a, a yeah. doctor and so comedy is I always think such an amazing vehicle for talking about serious stuff because you can be truthful in comedy is that is that do you agree yes Sorry, I, I always no, I say agree, things like a statement but no, then no. I'm like it's a question <laughs> but, yeah. well first of all thank you very much for being so uh, so sweet about that that's kind of you um, um, th the book is a sort of confidence trick um, I want I wanted people to read it because they wanted to get the funny stories, and it's very much been been marketed as this is a funny book. This is you know this is what it's really like to be a, a doctor, which it is. But it's also a lowercase p political book. Not that it tells you what to, what to think or what to do, but it just presents some data you might not have had before, so that next time the junior doctors come under fire, then. You're, you don't just have what the government tell you on the Today programme and on, you know, Mar and Pest and, you know, they've got access to, to more data so people can make up their minds. And the main thing I want people to, to, to realise, and it's told through humour in the most part, there's a lot of stories that can't be told through humour because it's just, you know, very sad stuff. But I do describe um, it, how difficult it is to keep your, um, to keep your life together. And I sort of, in a lot of ways, failed to keep my life together. And working 97-hour weeks, there's not much time for anything else. And so we saw, see friendships disappear, relationships um, collapse, and, you know, and, and also em emotionally um, what it does to you. And just remembering that doctors are, are humans. And just because you, you, know, you ticked that box on the UCAS form when you did, you, know, you could have ticked accountancy. But you are just, you, you are just someone with with sort of normal emotions. I did a, um, a clinic every, uh, every week for a year, uh, an antenatal clinic, and it ran three hours late routinely. It was meant to finish at five. My, I stopped getting paid at five. It ran too late because of the, you know, it was a mismatch between number of staff and number of patients. It's just how it was. And then, obviously, Everyone who came when it got to, to six, seven, eight o'clock, I'd be, you know, be yelling at me with the sort of "I've been waiting here since," you know, and the problems with childcare and the cars off the meter, and, and I would apologise, and, yeah, and they were right to complain. But not once in that year did any single patient say, "Oh, you probably don't want to be here either," because you, you don't want to think of your doctor as being too human. 
because you know they're your doctor they have to get it right so um this is just presenting your the fallibilities of of um of me as a doctor and hopefully representative of a lot of um other doctors with their fallibilities i don't present myself as a particularly good doctor you know i i, I make lots of mistakes and admit to them i'm yeah, I'm, I'm not the, the nicest person in the world. I'm often short with patients or rude to or about them. But um, I don't think at any <laughs> I don't think at any point uh, I come across greedy. Hopefully, and it was written in response to the public being told that doctors are being greedy. And so, if I can if I can change a bit of public perception through humour. I, pr I probably have more luck doing that than than a book, uh, a, a big sort of polemic mm -hmm. telling you on the front cover, this is why doctors aren't greedy. <laughs> <laughs> so true. It really does open your eyes to the, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. I wanted to ask as well about, I guess you are so skilled with storytelling and telling jokes. There are so many punchlines and there are so many twists and there are so many things where you're, you're, you're going down a serious route and then you just sort of like take the rug away. And I suppose that's, you know, a skilled storyteller comedian doing that. But did you, when you were writing it, were you like, oh, I could perform bits of this? Or is it just naturally something that you, you, you are so amazing at performing? You're, you're very kind. I, um, I, never, I never wrote it thinking that it would... Um, thinking that these stories would be told in any other places than you know in in pubs and uh, dinner parties to my to my mates but i was I thinking you're the best you must be the best dinner party guest <laughs> <laughs> well not all of them are turns out suitable for dinner <laughs> um, not the spaghetti bit oh, oh god um, so it stays with me <laughs> it was interesting looking back through my through my diaries the the more i wrote the longer i um you know, the, in the, the late years of being a doctor, they became more like sort of standard um, anecdotes that you would write if you were writing them for a for a book. But I think that I just got a better, I just became a, a better writer. I've always been, I've, I, I adore uh, David Sedaris, um, and I was very worried when I uh, when I produced this uh, this book that I would be accused of being a sort of low rent. David Sedaris. So um, I stopped as, as soon as the book got commissioned, and because um, I did have to, some of the, some of the the anecdotes were just sort of on like post-it notes or in bullet points, and so they, I did have to you know buff them up so they were at the very least sentences. Um, but I didn't want to to read any other diarists in case I sort of sort of absorbed too much yeah, of it. That makes sense. Do you want to read a little bit, just because? I thought that'd be fun. I mean, because I've binged I on mean, you reading it on YouTube, so I get the live version. It's very special. Okay. Um, I'll give you a choice. I'm going to go disgusting, if that's all right. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll give you the choice of degloving or Kinder Egg. Oh, the Kinder Egg. Okay. <laughs> and this is from the 29th of February, 2008. And by way of context, it doesn't need very much. I'm a doctor, as I say. Uh, I'm a registrar at this point, which is halfway marked to becoming a consultant. Um, and I work in the specialty of obstetrics and gynaecology. Obs and gyne. Brats and twats. <laughs> Parts and labor. 29th of February, 2008. Special occasions call for patients to insert special types of objects into their vaginas and recta. 
Christmas in particular has rewarded me well with a stuck fairy, a swollen vulva from a mis mistletoe contact allergy, and vaginal burns from a patient stuffing a string of lights inside and turning them on. <laughs> Bringing new meaning to the phrase, I put the Christmas lights up myself. <laughs> This is my first leap year working as a doctor, and the great British public have really pulled it out of the bag for me with a very, very specific injury. Patient JB decided to take advantage of tradition and proposed to her boyfriend, going to the expense of buying an engagement ring, the trouble of putting it inside a Kinder Surprise egg, and the imagination of inserting it vaginally. Her partner would discover it, retrieve it, and then she would go down on one knee, equal parts unexpected, disgusting, and... I suppose romantic. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was unable to retrieve it as planned. It had rotated itself lengthwise, and no amount of sugaring from either of them would get this particular goose to lay its golden egg. Remarkably, she was so keen to maintain the surprise, she wouldn't tell him what she'd done or why, but <laughs> eventually decided it was a hospital matter, so we met in cubicle three. It was a very easy delivery with a pair of forceps. She hadn't told me about the contents of the egg either at this point, so there was a moment of confusion for both me and the boyfriend <laughs> when she asked him to open it. <laughs> I passed him a pair of gloves, sandblasting the last trace of romance from the scenario. <laughs> she popped the question, and he said yes, <laughs> presumably out of fear as to what a woman who does that with the kinder surprise would do to him if spurned. <laughs> oh, my God, so good. Absolutely hilarious. Um... I mean, I wanted to ask you, just because I read it on the bookseller, so I'm thinking it's true. It are true. you writing another one? I am writing another one, yes. Are we allowed to talk about it a little bit? Uh, we are. I mean, if you ask anything too specific, the answer <laughs> would be, I really haven't written it. Um, <laughs> but I, I, could, I, could, I could talk in sort of, in theoretical terms about it, gladly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, one of the things that I thought was, uh, wouldn't be interesting to people, turns out was interesting, I've, I want to sort of expound on, and which is the concept, you know, like in physics, when equal, uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, the idea that, you know, breaking bad news and all that sort of, the, 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 the sad and bad stuff that doctors have to do does, does have an impact on you. And so um, I've, got a, I've got a bunch of other stories I want to, uh, I, I want to tell, and it's going to be called 100 Patients Who Changed My Life. So basically, how being a doctor, how seeing these patients changes you, not just as a doctor, but also as a person. So not just the sad stuff, but also the revolting stuff and the, and, and the, and the silly stuff, but, 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 but based around that, because a few things have happened that, um, I don't know if it's PTSD, but I, you know, I, I remember them, they come to me, they're, they're in dreams. Still, it's, a, it's an extreme job, and you don't forget these things. So there's the major ones, and also little things, and it's sort of made me, hopefully, a better communicator and it's made me a, a nicer person in some ways a much less tolerant pe person in other ways but uh, yeah yeah oh well just lastly um that was just brilliant um i i know that everyone asks you about you know kind of the impact of the book and the real life hope you know impact of people like jeremy hunt reading it and all that has he read it yet um, he's certainly been censored a lot. So you do these, uh, you do these uh, uh, book events uh, often in, in wonderful bookshops like uh, like this one, and afterwards, uh, you know, the bookshop quite reasonably want to uh, earn their keep and, and flog some copies, and uh, and people say, well, you can sign one for a friend as well, and and dozens of literally dozens of people said, could you sign one for Jeremy Hunt? Um, and 
and so I did. And then eventually a letter came through uh, to my publisher from Jeremy Hunt saying, and I paraphrase, if you come and meet me, will people stop sending me this fucking book? <laughs> Are we allowed to say fucking on the podcast? Well, we just Not did. Okay. Um, and, so, and so I went, to, I went to meet him. I don't really know what he wanted to achieve. Um, I think, in retrospect, he genuinely thought that he could change my opinion. And that at the end of the meeting, I'd be like, oh, no, sorry, no, you were right. Yeah, that was a, that was a great thing you did. Um, you see, he was, he was, he's a very clever man. And, um, and I, I do have a problem with a lot of the stuff he did. And, and I, I'm not, I don't sort of particularly put my political cards on the, on the table, but there's a lot of people from all parties who don't like what he's done because the NHS is more important than a political party. It's our... As our religion, as, mm. was, as was famously once said. But anyway, so he was trying to convince me he was being very political and, and very smooth. And I just kept asking all the questions I'd wanted to ask him for half a, a decade. And then eventually I asked him something about like, private medicine or something, and he snapped. He just he sort of really crossed and was like, I was expecting this to be a nice chat. So this is, you're, like, you're interrogating me. This is an interview. And um, I was like, oh, I never agreed to a nice chat. I just, uh, I just uh, <laughs> came along. And then and the, rest of the, the rest of our time, until he sort of pressed some sort of button and a special advisor came in, oh, your next person's here, Mr. Hunt. Um, it was all very sort of frosty and horrible in the, in the air. No one likes that sort of vibe. So at the end, I, I apologised. And I said, um, I'm really sorry if I came across nicer on on paper than <laughs> than I do in real life <laughs> and he said oh no you've been quite consistent <laughs> but I, I know that in, like, in a lot of interviews you've said you s you wish that he would could shadow you know real junior doctors and just see what their day is like and I feel like the book in some way you are kind of are shadowing someone yes uh, so I, I mean think he should read it he should he certainly had it preceded to him by uh by by an underling he, he knows the he knows the vibe but um, that's not enough. It's not enough to read a read a book. It's you know it's enough if you're you know if you're a member of the public who's wanting to who's wanting to get a better idea of what it's like under the hood. But if you're making a decision that impacts not just the lives of doctors but the lives of everyone who lives in the country, you need to you need to know what the you know what you know what the job actually is, and you need to actually be in hospitals um, because what currently happens is a minister does go round uh, hospitals, but they're taken around the chief executive, around the newest ward, and it's it's been polished mm -hmm. up and it's shiny like a space station, and there's no one really ill in it, and that's what that's what it's like. If you're the queen, everything smells of paint. If you're a health minister, you never see anyone who's actually ill. You never see any people doing any actual dirty work, um, because that because the job of a junior doctor involves, and you know, the re really terrible awful stuff that, that takes its, as I say, takes its toll on you. And there's, there's something I, I talk about in the, in the book at the, at the end, because um, right at the end of the book, I, I, I talk about leaving medicine. And, and I, I say this at the start, so I'm not spoiling it for anyone who, who doesn't know the book. Um, and after that, I just sort of I, I, I re reflect on what, what, what could be done better. And I talk about this guy, Roger Fisher, who was a professor of law at Harvard in the 80s, um, who uh, came up with the idea that they should implant the American nuclear codes into the heart of a volunteer. And if the president wanted to push the button and kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people, then first of all, he himself would have to take a knife and dig it out of this person's heart so he could see what death actually is. 
firsthand the implications of performing an abstract action because no president, not even this dude, no president would push the button if they had to do that first. And that is exactly what it means. Th you know, the Jeremy Hunt and his successor and their successors forever and ever and ever need to know what the job is because the job is palliating a cancer patient in their final days and the job is you know, amputating a teenage trauma victim's limb and the, the job was my job was delivering a dead baby and no human being with a beating heart in their body would know what the job is they question doctors motivation say they're being greedy I mean shame on him for ever saying that not shame on the people who believed it because we can only react to what we're told but so that's what I'm trying to do is just give give people as I say a little more data to work with Thank, thank you, Adam. A little clap come just for the book and for you and for everything. Thank you so, so much.